chapter fourteen part one of gilbert keith chesterton this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox gilbert keith chesterton by maisie ward chapter fourteen part one bernard shaw this chapter was read by g b s his remarks are printed in footnotes a facsimile of the one page altered substantially by him is omitted in this plain text electronic edition when any one in the early years of the century made a list of the english writers most in the public eye such a list always included the names of bernard shaw and g k chesterton but a good many people in writing down these names did so with unconcealed irritation and i think it is important at this stage to see why these men were constantly arguing with each other but the literary public felt all the same that they represented something in common and the literary public was by no means sure that it liked that something it could not quite resist bernard shaw's plays it loved chesterton whenever it could rebuke him affectionately for paradox and levity what that public succumbed to in these men was their art it was by no means so certain that it liked their meaning and so the literary public elected to say that shaw and chesterton were having a cheap success by standing on their heads and declaring that black was white the audience watched a shaw versus chesterton debate as a sham fight or a display of fireworks as indeed it always partly was for each of them would have died rather than really hurt the other but shaw and chesterton were operating on their minds all the time they were allowed to sit in the stalls and applaud but they were themselves being challenged and that spoiled their comfort chesterton in his autobiography complains of the falsity of most of the pictures of england during the victorian era the languishing fainting females who were in fact far stronger-minded than their granddaughters to-day the tyrannical pious fathers the dull conventional lives it all rings false to any one who grew up in an average victorian middle-class home and was happy enough there there was however one thing fundamentally wrong in such homes and it was on this fundamental sin that he agreed with shaw in waging a relentless war the middle classes of england were thoroughly and smugly satisfied with social conditions that were intolerable for the great mass of their fellow-countrymen they had erected between the classes artificial barriers and now did not even look over the top of them i remember how when my mother started a settlement in south london the head worker told us she often saw women groping in the dirt under the fish barrows for the heads and tails of fishes to boil for their children the settlement began to give the children dinners of dumplings or rice pudding and treacle and many well-to-do friends would give my mother a pound or so to help this work but the suggestion that government should intervene was socialism the idea that here was a symptom of a widespread evil was scouted utterly people might have learnt much from their own servants of how the rest of humanity were living but while said chesterton they laughed at the idea of the mediaeval baron whose vassals ate below the salt their own vassals ate and lived below the floor 
at no time in the christian past had there been such a deep and wide cleverage in humanity the first thing that g k c and g b s wells too and belloc were all agreed upon was that the upper and middle classes of england must be reminded if need were by a series of earthquakes that they were living in an unreal world they had forgotten the human race to which they belonged they a tiny section spoke of the mass of mankind as the poor or the lower orders almost as they might speak of the beasts of the forest as beings of a different race chesterton had a profound and noble respect for the poor shaw declared that they were useless dangerous and ought to be abolished but for both men the handful of quarrelsome cliques called the literary world was far too small because it was so tiny a section of the human race shaw and chesterton had in fact discovered the social problem to-day whether people intend to do anything about it or not it is impossible to avoid knowing something about it but at that date the idea was general that all was as well as could be expected in an imperfect world the trades unionists were telling a different story but they could not hope to reach intellectually the classes they were attacking here were men who could not be ignored and i cannot but think that it was sometimes the mere utterance of unwelcome truth in brilliant speech that aroused the cry of paradox i hear many people wrote chesterton complain that bernard shaw deliberately mystifies them i cannot imagine what they mean it seems to me that he deliberately insults them his language especially on moral questions is generally as straight and solid as that of a bargee and far less ornate and symbolic than that of a handsome cabman the prosperous english philistine complains that mr shaw is making a fool of him whereas mr shaw is not in the least making a fool of him mr shaw is with laborious lucidity calling him a fool g b s calls a landlord a thief and the landlord instead of denying or resenting it says ah that fellow hides his meaning so cleverly that one can never make out what he means it is all so fine-spun and fantastical g b s calls a statesman a liar to his face and the statesman cries in a kind of ecstasy ah what quaint intricate and half-tangled trains of thought ah what elusive and many-coloured mysteries of half-meaning i think it is always quite plain what mr shaw means even when he is joking and it generally means that the people he is talking to ought to howl aloud for their sins but the average representative of them undoubtedly treats the shabby and meaning as tricky and complex when it is really direct and offensive he always accuses shaw of pulling his leg at the exact moment when shaw is pulling his nose footnote george bernard shaw particular pages eighty two to three in footnote chesterton was however in agreement with the ordinary citizen and in disagreement with shaw as to much of shaw's essential teaching and here we touch a matter so involved that even to-day it is hard to disentangle it completely i suppose it will always be possible for two observers to look at human beings acting to hear them talking 
and to arrive at two entirely different interpretations of what they mean this is certainly the case with any very recent period and perhaps especially with our own recent history we have within living memory ended a period and begun an exceedingly different period and we tend to judge the former by the light or the darkness of the latter the victorian age even in its extreme old age was still tacitly assuming and legally enforcing as axioms the christian moral system especially in regard to marriage and all sex questions and the sacred nature of property to read many disquisitions on that period to-day one would suppose that no one living really believed in these things that humbug explained the first and greed the second this is surely a false perspective the age was an enormously conventional one these fundamental ideas had become fossilized and meaningless for an increasing number of younger people but when bernard shaw called himself an atheist out of a kind of insane generosity towards bradlaugh see his letter to g k later in this chapter or described all property as theft it was a real moral indignation that was roused in many minds real but exceedingly confused it is testified to the need of the ordinary man to live by a creed that he need not question shaw and chesterton were philosophers and philosophers love asking questions as well as answering them but the average man wants to live by his creed not question it and the elder victorians had still some kind of creed there were many who believed in god there were others who believed that the christian moral system must remain because it had commended itself to man's nature as the highest and best and was the true fruit of evolutionary progress there were certainly some who were angry because they thought chaos must follow any tampering with the existing social order but if you take the mass of those who tried to laugh bernard shaw aside and grew angry when they could not do so you find at the root of the anger an intense dislike of having any part of a system questioned which was to them unquestionable which they had erected into a creed they thought shaw's ideas dangerous and wanted to keep them from the young they did not want any one to ask how a civilization had laid its principles open to this brilliant and effective siege they hated shaw's questions before they began to hate his answers and that is probably why so many linked chesterton with shaw he gave different answers but he was asking many of the same questions he questioned everything as shaw did only he pushed his questions further they were deeper and more searching shaw would not accept the old scriptural orthodoxy g k refused to accept the new agnostic orthodoxy neither man would accept the orthodoxy of the scientists both were prepared to attack what butler had called the science-ridden art-ridden culture-ridden afternoon tea-ridden cliffs of old england they attacked first by the mere process of asking questions and the world thus questioned grew uneasy and seemed to care curiously little for the fact that the two questioners were answering their own questions in an opposite fashion where shaw said give up pretending you believe in god for you don't chesterton said 
rediscover the reasons for believing or else our race is lost where shaw said abolish private property which has produced this ghastly poverty chesterton said abolish ghastly poverty by restoring property and the audience said these two men in strange paradoxes seem to us to be saying the same thing if indeed they are saying anything at all chesterton wrote later of a young man whose aunt had disinherited him for socialism because of a lecture he had delivered against that economic theory and i well remember how often after my own energetic attempts to explain why a distributist was not a socialist i was met with a weary well it's just the same it was just the same question it was an entirely different answer but the audience annoyed by the question never seemed to listen to the answer one man was saying sweep away the old beliefs of humanity and start fresh the other was saying rediscover your reasons for these profound beliefs make them once more effective for they are the very nature of man shaw and chesterton were themselves deeply concerned about the answers both sincere both dealing with realities they were prepared to accept each other's sincerity and to fight the matter out if need were endlessly being writers they conducted their discussions in writing being journalists they did so mainly in the newspapers to the delight or fury of other journalists a jealous few were enraged at what they called publicity hunting but most realized that it was not a private fight any one might join in and a good many did belloc was in the fight as early as chesterton and of course on the same side g b s who had invented the chester belloc declared that chesterton felt obliged to embrace the dogmas of catholicism lest belloc's soul should be damned h d wells agreed in the main with shaw both were fabians and both were ready with a fabian utopia for humanity which belloc and chesterton felt would be little better than a prison cecil chesterton coming in at an angle of his own wrote some effective articles he was a fabian actually an official fabian but his outlook already embraced many of the chester belloc human and genial ideals although he still ridiculed their utopia of the peasant state small ownership and all that came later to be called distributism like the clarion the new age itself a socialist paper saw the wisdom of giving a platform to both sides and in this paper appeared the best articles that the controversy produced meanwhile the private friendship between g b s and g k c was growing apace very early on shaw had begun to urge g k to write a play g k was perhaps beginning to feel that newspaper controversy did not give him space to say all he wanted about shaw or perhaps it was merely that monsieur lane had persuaded him to promise them a book on shaw for a series they were producing anyhow in a letter of nineteen o eight shaw again urges the play and gives interesting information for the book ayat st lawrence wellwyn hartsfordshire first march nineteen o eight my dear g k c what about that play it is no use trying to answer me in the new age 
the real answer to my article is the play i have tried fair means the new age article was the inauguration of an assault below the belt i shall deliberately destroy your credit as an essayist as a journalist as a critic as a liberal as everything that offers your laziness a refuge until starvation and shame drive you to serious dramatic parturition i shall repeat my public challenge to you vaunt my superiority insult your corpulence torture belloc if necessary call on you and steal your wife's affections by my intellectual and athletic displays until you contribute something to the british drama you are played out as an essayist your ardor is soddened your intellectual substance crumbled by the attempt to keep up the work of your twenties and your thirties another five years of this and you will be the apologist of every infamy that wears a liberal or catholic mask you too will speak of the portraits of vicelli and the assumption of allegre and declare that democracy refuses to lackey label these honest citizens as titian and Correggio even that colossal fragment of your ruined honesty that still stupendously dismisses beethoven as some rubbish about a piano will give way to remarks about a graceful second subject in the relative minor nothing can save you now except a rebirth as a dramatist i have done my turn and i now call on you to take yours and do a man's work it is my solemn belief that it was my quintessence of epsonism that rescued you and all your ungrateful generation from materialism and rationalism footnote cecil avowed this as far as he was concerned g b s and footnote you were all tired young atheists turning to kipling and ruskinian anglicanism whilst i with the angel's wings beating in my ears from beethoven's ninth symphony o blasphemous walker in deafness gave you in eighteen eighty and eighteen eighty one two novels in which you had your rationalist secularist hero immediately followed by my beethovenian hero true nobody read them but was that my fault they are read now it seems mostly in pirated reprints in spite of their appalling puerility and classical perfection of style you are right as to my being a born pendant like all great artists and are at least useful as documentary evidence that i was no more a materialist when i wrote love among the artists at twenty-four than when i wrote candida at thirty-nine my appearances on the platform of the hall of science were three in number once for a few minutes in a discussion in opposition to bradlaugh who was defending property against socialism bradlaugh died after that though i do not claim to have killed him the socialist league challenged him to debate with me at st james's hall but we could not or would not agree as to the proposition to be debated he insisting on my being bound by all the publications of the democratic federation to which i did not belong and i refusing to be bound by anything on earth or in heaven except the proposition that socialism would benefit the english people and so the debate never came off 
now in those days they were throwing bradlaugh out of the house of commons with bodily violence and all one could do was to call oneself an atheist all over the place which i accordingly did at the first public meeting of the shelley society at university college addressed by stopford brooke i made my then famous among a hundred people declaration i am a socialist an atheist and a vegetarian ergo a true shelleyan whereupon two ladies who had been palpating with enthusiasm for shelley under the impression that he was a devout anglican resigned on the spot my second hall of science appearance was after the last of the bradlaugh hindman debates at st james's hall where the two champions never touched the ostensible subject of their difference the eight hours day at all but simply talked socialism or anti-socialism with a hearty dislike and contempt for one another g v foote was then in his prime as the successor of brad laugh and as neither the secularists nor the socialists were satisfied with the result of the debate it was renewed for two nights at the hall of science between me and foote a verbatim report was published for sixpence and is now a treasure of collectors having the last word on the second night i had to make a handsome wind-up and the secularists were much pleased by my declaring that i was altogether on foot's side in his struggle with the established religion of the country when bradlaugh died the secularists wanted a new leader because b s enormous and magnetic personality left a void that nobody was big enough to fill it was really like the death of napoleon in that world there was j m robertson foote and charles watts but bradlaugh liked foote as little as most autocrats like their successors and when he before his death surrendered the gavel the hammer for thumping the table to secure order at a meeting which was the presidential sceptre of the national secular society he did so with an ill will which he did not attempt to conceal and so though foote was the nearest size to bradlaugh's shoes then available he succeeded him at the disadvantage of inheriting the distrust of the old chief j m robertson you know he was not a mob orator watts was not sufficient he had neither foote's weight being old nor robertson's scholarship so whilst the survivors of bradlaugh were trying to keep up the hall of science and to establish a memorial library etc there they cast round for new blood what more natural than that they should think of me as a man not afraid to call himself an atheist and able to hold his own on the platform accordingly they invited me to address them and one memorable night i held forth on progress in free thought i was received with affectionate hope and when the chairman announced that i was giving my share of the gate to the memorial library i have never taken money for lecturing the enthusiasm was quite touching the anti-climax was super shavian i proceeded to smash materialism rationalism and all the philosophy of tyndall helmholtz darwin and the rest of the eighteen sixty people into smithereens i ridiculed and exposed every inference of science and justified every dogma of religion 
especially showing that the trinity and the immaculate conception were the merest common sense that finished me up as a possible leader of the n s s robertson came on the platform white with honest scotch rationalist rage and denounced me with a fury of conviction that startled his own followers never did i grace that platform again i repeated the address once to a branch of the n s s on the south side of the thames kensington i think and was interrupted by yells of rage from the veterans of the society the lester secularists a pious folk rich and independent of the n s s were kinder to me but they were no more real atheists than the congregation of st paul's is made wholly of real christians foot is still bewildered about me imagining that i am a pervert but anybody who reads my stuff from the beginning a shelleyan beginning as far as it could be labelled at all will find implicit and sometimes explicit the views which in their more matured form will appear in that remarkable forthcoming masterpiece shavianism a religion by the way i have omitted one more appearance at the hall of science at a four nights debate on socialism between foote and mrs besant i took the chair on one of the nights i take advantage of a snowy sunday afternoon to scribble all this down for you because you are in the same difficulty that beset me formally namely the absolute blank in the history of the immediate past that confronts every man when he first takes to public life written history stops several decades back and the bridge of personal recollection on which older men stand does not exist for the recruit nothing is more natural than that you should reconstruct me as the last of the rationalists his real name is blatchford and nothing could be more erroneous it would be much nearer the truth to call me in that world the first of the mystics if you can imagine the result of trying to write your spiritual history in complete ignorance of painting you will get a notion of trying to write mine in ignorance of music bradlaugh was a tremendous platform heavyweight but he had never in his life as far as i could make out seen anything heard anything or read anything in the artistic sense he was almost beyond belief incapable of intercourse and private conversation he could tell you his adventures provided you didn't interrupt him which you were mostly afraid to do as the man was a mesmeric terror but as to exchanging ideas or expressing the universal part of his soul you might as well have been reading the letters of charles dickens to his family those tragic monuments of dumbness of soul and noisiness of pen lord help you if you ever lose your gift of speech g k c don't forget that the race is only struggling out of its dumbness and that it is only in moments of inspiration that we get out a sentence all the rest is padding yours ever g bernard shaw end of chapter fourteen part one